Please remember, the information in our podcast could be a trigger for some people. And if you or someone you know has been affected by sexual abuse, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre 24-hour helpline is 1-800-77-8888. Hello, I'm Joyce. I'm June. And I'm Paula. We're the Cabinet Sisters and we'd like to welcome you to our series of Count Me Podcasts where we continue to shine a light on childhood sexual abuse and its impacts. In today's podcast, we'll be talking to Dr. Lisa Cuthbert, CEO of PACE, Prisoner Aid Through Community Effort. Lisa has worked substantially in the criminal justice and social care field. She is the CEO of PACE since 1999 and has overseen the growth and development of PACE as the largest criminal justice not-for-profit service provider. Last year, PACE celebrated 50 years in business and under Lisa's stewardship, PACE has widened the range of convictions that the organization works with and now offers a three-pronged approach to working with people with convictions for harmful sexual behavior, classified as being at high risk of reoffending. This includes the Safer Lives Treatment Programme, the Foothold Floating Support Service, and the Four Circles of Support and Accountability Programme in Ireland. The first thing I'd like to say, Lisa, is thank you for taking the time to talk to us here today. And although we know PACE doesn't only work with prisoners who have sexual convictions, this is where we'd like to focus most of our attention for the purpose of this podcast. Can you start off by telling us if you know how many prisoners with sexual convictions are incarcerated in Ireland at present? And can you elaborate on that three-pronged approach for prisoners with sexual convictions? This is, first of all, thanks very much, June and Joyce and Paula, for having me and, and, and for taking the time to talk. In terms of looking at what's happening, I suppose, for people in prison at, at the moment, there's two prisons currently in Ireland that work with uh, men with sexual convictions. There are the, the Midlands, and that has the largest amount there because that's the largest prison. It's probably about 400 or, or thereabouts kind of in the Midlands prison. And you're looking at a, maybe another additional 100 or so, not all of them with sexual convictions in Arbor Hill as well. So you're looking at between four to 500 uh, kind of men in prison with convictions for harmful sexual behaviour with various lengths of sentences and various lengths of, of convictions and various offences. I'm a bit surprised there's even 500 locked up considering how bad their sentences is and how yeah. very low a percentage of cases even make it to trial. So I'm surprised there's even that number. Yeah. yeah. We work at both prisons. Our, these programmes are funded through the probation service as well. So our referrals come specifically from probation officers who are based both in the Midlands prison and Arbor Hill. And we also would take some referrals from the community-based probation officers as well. And we work very much in partnership with them for this particular group. What we look for in terms of being able to do the post-release work, you may have a judge, particularly for treatment, you may have a judge that suspends sentencing until such time as treatment is completed. Our preference and where we see the best value for what we do is when the, the conviction is adjudicated. So we're at the other end, when we're that post-release piece where people are coming out, they've served whatever custodial element of their sentence they have, they will still have a community-based element, be it either part suspended supervision order or um, a post-release supervision order. They'll have one of those two, and that then gives us a period of time within which we can work with them in the community. 
are you dealing with them after they've completed their sentence? Do you not do any work with them during we the sentence? No. During the sentence, what we would just do is maybe go in. When the referral comes into us, we'd go in and meet them. And we start to get to know them. We start to develop that relationship so that when they're coming out, they're coming out to people they know. Our work is, is very much based in the community. It's a long-term piece. Trying to work with people for a number of years because this work is quite detailed and it takes time. We generally look to, if we've got any influence in terms of going back in and looking at recommendations around sentencing, we'll always look to have a minimum of two years of a post-release supervision order of some sort, you know, two years of a suspended sentence within which they're under the supervision of the probation service within which we can actually work in a structured way. Do you work with a large amount of them or just a small percentage of them? When you look at the population, I suppose, within the prisons who have, who have sexual convictions, we're working with the people that would be classified as being at, at medium to high. And generally, we mainly get the high to very high. So for us, where we see the most value in the work we do is, is working with people who are most likely to reoffend. Who um, determines the risk factor? There's two actuarial tools. The first tool is the Risk Matrix 2000. That's the static tool, and that looks at the first layer of risk, for want of a better word. So anybody that is assessed in, with that tool, that could be either through the guards or through probation, depending on where the person's at. They look at the offence, they look at the victim, they look at all those factual stuff, they look at some of the context, and that's the first layer of risk assessment. Is that one so person's call? It's not one person's call because all of these things are, there's a mentoring programme in terms of people being having their judgment assessed. So there is a, a professional clinical judgment but then that's checked off. And there are times when somebody may have a low on the RM, but there are things that we know aren't being measured by this tool. And there's a reason to go to the more dynamic tool, which is a stable and acute. And that's more an in-depth, really in-depth look. And there's a whole narrative with that. And that takes a number of sessions to complete. So all probation officers will be trained in that. Our staff will be trained in the stable and acute as well. And that just drills down into everything. So you're looking at the life story. You're looking at the offence. you're looking at triggers you're looking at the individual's whole history you're looking at the knowledge of the victim you're looking at age of victim you're looking at attitudes towards women you're looking at emotional identification with children you're looking at all very uh, in-depth factors that can lead to offenses and it's through that assessment that you begin to get a really good sense as to the areas that we need to address we have three services foothold is our floating support service so that's the less formal service and that's really focused around support and managing risk if there's homeless needs if there's other needs id needs or intellectual disability needs or mental health needs foothold is kind of there to provide a kind of a lot of intensive support and that's part of the risk management plan so then we also have safer lives treatment program and we run three groups a week so we work with 24 men a week again from that risk management strategy in terms of looking at understanding the offense understanding the triggers and we also undertake individual assessments ourselves with people when we get a referral in so we go through a specific tool which is the the sex offenders treatment needs and through that we're taking the information that comes to the stable and cute we're then going through a number of assessments ourselves which can be maybe three to three to four meetings in terms of getting the information and going through it and then looking at again a scoring because all of these things end up with a score and looking at the level of treatment needs to ensure that when we do bring the person into the program we know what we need to be capturing and we know the areas that we need to work on and we know the areas that we need to be reporting on in terms of feeding back in both to the probation service and doing a final report at the end that says whether people progressed or not 
So that treatment needs assessment happens at different intervals. So you'd have the beginning, the middle, and, and one near the end. And that's where we can see the difference of the work. We're seeing if those needs have been addressed. We're seeing maybe some of the things the person may have been stuck on. And we're able then to make recommendations as to what the next steps are. So is there a percentage of your guys who come to you haven't already took a treatment program in prison? Yeah, there would be. Is that a prerequisite or does it make any difference? No, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, what we find is that the experience of treatment in prison is quite different because you're in a different context. And what we find is that people may have completed the majority of the program within the prison, but when they're coming out, there will still be different treatment needs because there'll be things that may come up for them in the community that wouldn't have come up in the prison. Some people may have completed the prison and may not need a full program in the community, but may need some kind of a maintenance or a follow-on piece. And then we've got to look at what we can do in that context if they're not suitable or not ready for a full program. Is everybody assessed? If you've served your sentence, are you assessed before they free it? No. No. So it's only if somebody identifies and refers it to you. What gets people referred to us, a post-release supervision order or a suspended sentence, that means they're going to be under the supervision of the probation service. Because not everybody that goes in with a sexual conviction will be coming out with a probation element to their order. So a lot of people would have completed their full sentence and come out with nothing. Okay, so is that part of the sentence? That's part of the sentencing, yeah. And the judge will decide whether there is any post-release supervision order or whether there's a suspended sentence or whatever, you know. The probation service over the last number of years have worked with judges to get that community aspect built in because that's what's essential in terms of ensuring that somebody can live safely and well for their own sake as well as everybody else's in the community. A lot depends on who the judge is. We can at times have an issue with inconsistency in sentencing. There are times when it seems too light, given what we're seeing in front of us, and there are times when it seems quite right, and there are times when it just doesn't make sense at all. So we're working at the end of it where we're trying to look at what level of involvement does there need to be in terms of the guards? What level of involvement does there need to be in terms of probation? What can we work with to affect change? There's no comparison between the effects on the person that's been the victim versus the effect on the person that's been the offender or the perpetrator. And that's a challenge as you look to try to manage the whole. What kind uh, of numbers do you treat per annum? We would be in contact through Safer Lives with about, about 50 to 60 people. So some, not all of those would go into groups. Some of that would be through individual. But we're dealing with about 24 people a week in three groups. And that's over like a 14 to 16 month period. Uh, and then you have on top of that, there would be individual work uh, in terms of all the assessments. And then there's also the recommendations that we would be making to probation for those that may not have treatment needs, but need a specific piece of work on a specific thing. Is everybody that's on a probation or on a follow-up getting seen by you, do they have to be referred to you? They have to be referred to us. On average a year, I think there's about 130 people released from prison with different levels of sexual conviction. About 50% of those would be kind of low risk. The other maybe 60 to 65 people, some of those would be medium risk. You know, some of those would be high and some of those would be very high. Can you tell me what's considered a low risk on a sex offender? It all goes back to the offence. So when you look at something that's low risk, you're looking at what was the risk to the person? So were they in public was it an unknown person to them the victim's unknown the risk level increases because that means you somebody's having to go to a lot of effort what risk taking in behavior 
in addition right. to the offence, did the person actually get involved with? Were they like, or were they under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time? There's a lot of offences where there may have been no contact. They can still be a high risk offence, depending on the images, for example, depending on the offence. So have you got research around the three-pronged approach and the effectiveness of it, the numbers that have gone through, and are they promising? We undertook an evaluation of our services. A PhD student from UCD did that. The difficulty that you have when you look at recidivism rates, we have to go to the CSO to get that because for us to be able to concretely say that Joe Bloggs there has not done anything, you need to go back to the guards and go back to the justice system to make sure that that's proven. Is a combination of both anecdotal, but also the piece that comes through the guards. What we know is that the approach that we take works. When we look at the recidivism rates for people going through COSA, for example, that's the one that has the strongest evidence in terms of that international basis. And internationally, there's a kind of 80, 80 to 85% reduction in offending for people who would have been high risk, who would have gone on to reoffend by bringing them into that program and having kind of them working with them over a long period of time. We've been running Safer Lives since 2012, so that's eight years. And in that time, time we've had one new offence. We've had a number of people who had old charges, who had outstanding charges, that then they went into prison for after they completed the programme. And that sounds very promising. It's good because what we're looking at is it's quite an intensive level of work. You know, you're looking at spending that time with people and you're looking at not just the offence but you're also looking at how they live now and you're also trying to find their strengths because what we find is when we look at the risk level if that's all we see we get stuck in that so whereas if we're looking to try to take what we call the good lives model and a strengths-based approach you're saying okay I know this is what you've done you've, you've done this harm and that's part of the process is everybody has to you know admit and own up to what they've done because that taking responsibility is a very important step. So as they take that responsibility, we then look to see what we put in place so that they don't do that again. Because everything becomes a choice at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, so how do we make better decisions? But how do we understand why we did this? And that's the very difficult piece for a lot of the men that we work with. It's the life story piece. We've got two core tasks, I suppose, between the life story and the offence task. They're the bits that are the most powerful pieces in terms of the, the work that we do. And then you're looking at once those pieces are done, and that can take weeks and weeks and weeks for some of them. Some people can really struggle with it because there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of guilt, there's a lot of remorse. And it's trying to get beyond that to actually be able to name it so that we can actually understand it and that they can understand it themselves. And they know why they did what they did because it's really important to understand that there's an element of choice there, to understand that if we're harming people seriously, you know, which is what this, these offences are, they cause serious harm, we have the power to not do that again. We, as in the, the men who undertake the treatment, you know, it's really important that they get that they get it. And it can take time. It can take time. And that peer group is really important as well. So the group process is one of the strengths of the safer lives you know because it means that they're they're seeing other men at different stages you know and they're seeing other men model these these tasks and talk about their lives and talk about the offenses and talk about why they did what they did and they're able to kind of learn in a constructive way that means the person will learn to live better and not reoffend and not cause harm yeah you you were saying you're funded by the probation services yeah yeah, yeah. Are you just like every other service and you're strapped? We're like every other service. A good chunk of our funding is state funding. 
But we also then have unrestricted income where we need to make money ourselves. We never have enough. And, and so that will be the ongoing piece of probation. You know, we always ask, you know, for the amount that we think we need, but we never get it. You don't have a waiting list or anything like that. It's... We do at times. Yeah. Do you? Jesus. That's not necessarily down to resources. That's down to so the maximum that we can have in each group is eight. So when we look at who's coming into the group, we have to look at what their time frame is with their orders in the community. Right. So that's why if somebody's coming out of prison today and they've got an order for a year, that that's not really going to be long enough. And that's a challenge. And that's, a, and that's the educational piece going back to judges. Could you not go back to the court and request? That would have to be probation. Probation would have to request that. There's a possibility to get that under the present. Oh, yeah, it can happen. Yeah, it can happen. It means that we're not necessarily going to be able to impact or make a positive change because he's not going to be in group long enough. And it's, group process is hard, you know, it's, it's challenging kind of thing. So it can take time to get people bedded down. So that's why you need to allow for that settling in period, you know, and you need to allow for the different dynamics within the group. And you need to allow for the different mm-hmm. challenges because we are working with people who increasingly are you know, have homelessness and other issues. You must struggle trying to sell this programme. I'm looking at it like this way. There's the, the number of victims that are out there that cannot get justice. They can't yeah. even get to court. But then they ignore them and the ones that do get to court. And they can't afford therapy, or even if they could, they can't get it because it's not there because we don't fund it. I can't imagine what it's like for you to try and go in and get funding for the guys that nobody wants to know live in this world and they say they don't want to help them. So how do you work your way around that? Well, I suppose this, this isn't a programme that we'd be rattling the boxes at the church gates for. It's not that type of programme. <laughs> that's the reality of the work that we do. That's why we're always conscious of the sensitivity of the work that we do. We're specifically here to work with people who have criminal offences coming from prison. Within that population, you, there is a huge level of victimhood. But when I look at the, the work that we've done with our non-prevention clients, there's always been a big cohort of people who will be struggling with addictions, struggling with mental health, having offending behaviour, but also would have been offended against as, as kids, have also got severe trauma. And their addiction comes from that as they try to struggle to manage it. So I've always had that awareness that we have the two hats kind of here in, in terms of working with people who've been harmed, but also working with people who've caused the harm in the prevention services but also some of them have been harmed sexually too so it's, it's a complex mix it's one I think that the state needs to fund I don't think this is one that we should be going back to the general public to go please help and I think to be fair probation service see that they fund us through their support we've been able to grow so we would have started off with less staff than we have now for example so because of the demand for the service because of the recognition of the work that we do is being good and valuable and making a difference We've been able to increase staffing over the last couple of years. So that means we're able to work with, with more people through Foothold and more people through Safer Lives. And whenever we get out of COVID-19, we're looking at further programme development that will enable us to work with different people within that prevention services or within the sexual offending population. Because there is work that we need to do. We don't have a balanced approach to how we deal with anything that causes harm to people, whether that's through sexual violence or other violence. We, we, the voice of the victim is never there it's never considered and i think that we we suffer as a result of that because there's an awful lot of people that have been harmed in society way more than we know way more than we can possibly count when you look at the attrition rate that happens 
within people with sexual convictions, it's very low. By the time you actually get to court even, never mind getting to kind of the, to the prison end of it, we have a system that doesn't work from anybody's angle. People who sexually offend and aren't caught or aren't, you know, stopped, it's not in their interest to not have that behavior stopped. It's not in anybody's interest to kind of have it ignored or swept under the carpet, either from the victim's perspective or the survivor's perspective or the person that's caused that harm. Because in order to not do it again, in order to, for everybody to reach the full potential, we need to be better at naming this. And, and I think we still struggle with naming it, to be honest. You know? And I mean, a lot of the people that I know who would have been harmed sexually, there would never have been any adjudication process, either through their own not reporting it. There's a lot of the stories not told. And people are then having to go and do their own healing in a way that's not restorative or in a way that's not balanced. Sometimes there's no closure, no sense of a healing or no sense of justice either. So it's been very clear that our, all of our work with anybody with sexual convictions is separate. It's nowhere near our accommodation services. It's nowhere near our social enterprise or training. We keep all of those separate. Well, I suppose we have a lot of people who've been through those services who've been harmed, but also like with social enterprise, we've got people going out into the community. So we have to balance all of that with the concerns that would come from the community and the right for people with other convictions to be able to go on and work without necessarily being tainted, you know, by the, the stigma that comes with kind of working with people with having a sexual conviction. So when we started this work, it was not something we were very public about. So COSA in 2015 or was it the first time we were standing up as an organisation where we're working with people with sexual convictions and we're looking for people to come help us and come work with us. And that did, for me, feel quite scary at the time. It's not work people understand. It's not work people like. There was an understanding, actually, that there is a need for this, that we can't just rush the things that we don't like onto the carpet. I think it's a really clear demonstration of the fact that the shame that's attached to this crime for victims and perpetrators and for yeah. anybody who's even going to work with them, you're, you actually hold that shame. That's not yeah. yours either. So yeah, it's about how to be get over that and what you're doing is extremely necessary but how do we get over people doing that work not taking on shame i think that's the challenge and i think that was a piece that we had to go through as an organization and i had to go through as well myself in terms of as ceo kind of saying okay this is me taking the organization that's well established and it works well with you know people with all these convictions but i would have been very keen to always make sure we were bringing everybody in and then when we looked to how we do that as an organization, it was talking to the staff, giving them the space to go, well, ugh, I don't want to necessarily work for an organization that works with people's sexual convictions. You know, I don't know if I can do that. Okay, well, this is the commitment we're making to EAS staff in terms of keeping it separate. And also we'd make commitments to the community that those projects were in to not have people there with sexual convictions. So it meant that we had to set up everything from scratch. We now do through Foothold provide kind of individual units of accommodation. Well, my frustration is that we have training spaces, but we don't use them for anybody through our prevention services because we made the commitment to keep them separate and we continue to do that. It means that we have to be a bit more creative, a bit more innovative. As we stepped into this work, trying to manage the risk to the organisation so that we could stand up and go, we're doing it, we know what we're doing, we're doing it well, we're doing it responsibly, and it's important work. And I think it's the most challenging work that we can do as an organisation. And yes. just because you are not taking what you've identified and putting them into a community, the community's full of perpetrators anyway. It's treating people like they're different instead of, hang on for a minute, that's your father, brother, mothers. And that's where I think half of the problem comes from. 
is yeah. people identifying sexual offenders as different or others and yeah. they're not and I think that's the really important thing, Paula, because what we're looking at is, is everybody, their father, their brother, their son, their daughter, their wife, their sister, yeah. their friend or cousin, you know. I think it's really important that we have done it and that we continue to do it. And I also think it's important that we know the limits of what we can do, but also that we're, we're looking at the worst things that people can do. And it's being able to separate that and being able to work with it in a way that's not traumatizing the staff, in a way that's not traumatizing for anybody else or for, for the organization. This is a part of the society that we live in. You know, through PACE, we have the advantage of working with people who have convictions. So we know exactly what these men have done. We know what they've been convicted of. And I think that's the reality that we have to look at in terms of looking at the work we do and how we move forward. So if somebody in the community who, who hasn't been uh, caught but decides that they need help, would they have any access to any of those programmes? We only work with people with convictions. Say if they even were convicted, say if they got a conviction but there wasn't an element, a community element to it, so they weren't under probation, but they realised that this programme is there, they need the help, would they still not have access? They could still get access, but it'd be quite difficult. They'd need to do that through probation. So one in four are on the Phoenix programme, and that's yeah. for people who don't have convictions. So our model is very much based on being part of the risk management plan, which means it's tied in with probation, it's tied in with the guards. So we have had people who probation have agreed to take on a voluntary basis. Right. So if you have somebody that's willing, but generally that would be them going to our probation officer, in either in the prison or the community, and saying, we want to do this and then asking for voluntary supervision. Lisa, the programmes that you're running, they're all evidence-based, I, I get that. Yeah. Were they developed here, or are they all taken from other countries? Uh, before we started the Safe Lives programme, we were looking at the models that run in the UK, models that run in the States, and, and looking at the pieces that work best. We've taken two models and merged them. So we took a far more therapeutic approach. There are tasks and the specific things that happen, but it's coming from a strengths-based approach, and it's coming from a good life model. And it gives us the time then to build on each of those strengths. Whereas if we focus too much on risk, we get stuck. It becomes harmful. It becomes quite toxic. Sorry. Right. So Lisa, have you or did you ever treat a woman sex offender? We do, yeah. We work with men and with women. But the, the model for women is different because you can't have a group model. Why? There's not enough of them. You can't mix genders in a group. When you work with women... Uh, you're also looking potentially at, at women who've also been victims of sexual violence. So it's a different model when it comes to doing treatment for, that we have in Ireland, because again, we don't have the population for groups for women. Right. Is there any increase in women getting convictions? There will be. There's a couple of cases that are coming up that will yeah. be that but, should be convicted. Yeah. But you were saying they could have come out with abuse themselves. Yeah. Is that not the case with most uh, abusers, or is it? No. You're looking at maybe 50% or less, thereabouts. What we see more so through foothold, because foothold's crime group is the higher need level. They have homelessness, they have addiction, they have mental health. They're the most challenging group to work with. When we have people in foothold who've experienced victimization themselves, they can be really difficult to work with because of the level of chaos that's there, because you're looking at two different identities. You're looking at trying to address their issues of victimhood, but you're also looking at the behaviours around sexual offending. And you're also just looking at managing addiction and mental health and depression, all kinds of things at the same time, combined at times with homelessness. So trying to have the stability 
in their lives to be able to address those through treatment is the biggest challenge. Yeah, sorry, are you saying that about 50% of the people that you would deal with might come forward with experience of childhood? I'm not sure if 50% is accurate, but it's not all of them. Could that be down to the fact that maybe you don't have them long enough? I know that we'd have them long enough. When you look at the life story, the life story brings all this stuff up. It comes out because these assessments are quite intensive. It it leaks. It comes at different times. In your experience, have you seen any common threads that run throughout offenders? No. What we see with people with convictions for harmful sexual behaviours, they're quite a different group to even the, the ordinary kind of group of people with offences. You're looking at all kinds of backgrounds. You're looking at all education levels. You're looking at all kinds of family profiles. You're looking at all kinds of things because it's a very different type of offending pattern. And then even within that, you're looking at the different types of sexual offences that are there. So in our treatment group, you'll have eight people. So you'll have people who would have what we call non-contact offences in terms of they haven't physically touched somebody, but they have been in possession of images of child sexual exploitation. So they would see themselves as being quite different to somebody that is sexually offended against one child. And then you have somebody who may have sexually offended against an adult who sees themselves as being quite different somebody that's sexually offended against a child you do get that oh geez i'm not going in there i couldn't stand to be in a room with a child abuser i am not like him part of the group dynamic is managing that and do you have any problems lisa getting people to work with them well it's a hard area to work very few people that would be coming out kind of with their doctors in psychology would see this area of work as their primary goal yeah. you know it's not necessarily something they've thought about we know that when we get people in as psychologists we will have them there maybe for two years and then they'll move into the HSC where there's a different career path. It's not necessarily, you know, the easiest group to even think of working with. And it's not necessarily why people decided that they wanted to be psychologists in the first place. Some do. Some do come with a forensic interest. We do a lot of that training then ourselves, but also work with probation officers who are forensic and who are social workers. So between that combination, we end up with the right multidisciplinary skill set. They are her posts to fill. And what could help to improve that, Lisa? And I think once we've got people in, like they do like it and there's a good team identity, we've always a very strong team and we've got good discussions and there's huge learning and development and, and we do an awful lot of training for staff. There probably should be a limit on how long they work because there's a burnout factor yeah. for therapists working with, with victims and survivors. Yeah. So like to have to work with the perpetrators, I would imagine there's a burnout factor involved there. So it probably should be limited to a couple of years. A lot depends on the actual individual staff and it's something that we're unconscious of. My learning from the very beginning was saying, oh, maybe three years is the max for this job. But yet the people that we have currently have changed that because they're they're still fresh and they have a lot of support but they've a lot of autonomy in their work as well and they're able to see the value of the work even though we are working with people on a long-term basis through foothold you're looking at them and thinking well actually this is going to be like a 10-year piece of work how do you step back from somebody who always needs some support to live even vaguely independently and that's the challenge that we have maybe the experience that they're gaining on how to manage the exactly. situation the yeah, way exactly. we were talking to nolan blackwell at the rape crisis center she was saying oh, yeah. her therapists work part-time that's yeah. how they've managed the burnout factor yeah. so maybe something similar is happening there that they yeah. recognize the support that they need with foothold they're not looking at it at the therapeutic way they're looking at it from a practical way there's various aspects to the role you wouldn't be doing the therapeutic piece with the same facilitators for five years you just couldn't 
That's why kind of with Safer Lives, there's a structure and there's a time limit. Is there a gender difference in your in your staff when you're doing your group work? Now the group work is two females. Is that a barrier for the men? Would they would they be more comfortable with a male counsellor or do they actually want a female counsellor? What we see is is actually the female facilitators work really, really well because also we're looking at how they relate to women, because if this is like a hostility to women, that's a concern. So kind of how that comes into the room when you've got the female in the position of power is always a good and interesting dynamic. Back at the beginning, we would have had one male and one female. We've never had two male facilitators. We've always had kind of one male, one female, and now two females is the way it's kind of working currently. Because what we saw actually was having a female staff member in foothold. You know, we had a male client. And we would have had concerns very much at the beginning in terms of risk management and managing all that stuff. It was just interesting in terms of how his whole language of demeanor changed when he had a woman into his apartment. Then through that work, we were able to work in a restorative way with him and with her and with the team by literally having a female support worker working with a man with him it brought out the attitudinal piece that had just been slightly hidden and so we were able to name that and kind of watch that and look at how we address that so what drew you into this area so working with people in prison in general in particular with sexual offenders when i was in college and stuff i would have always done voluntary work i would have done prison visits and then i would have worked with homeless people I spent a year in, in an Irish in Canada and then came back and did a therapeutic training. I trained as a counsellor through that group work and seeing very quickly and very clearly that the stuff that I'd have seen in Canada, I thought was kind of over there, wasn't necessarily going to be as relevant here, that in the room, we were the one and four, that's what was there. And I suppose just that sense that actually we have a responsibility here to try to fix things. I'm probably my mother's daughter <laughs> in terms of trying to do that. And that if we know something, knowledge is power, we, we need to do something about it. So when I started in PACE, I was always very conscious that we didn't, we worked with everybody except people with sexual convictions. So from very early on, I was very keen to try to see how we could start to bring people in with sexual convictions in a way that was meaningful, in a way that was going to prevent harm. So it was driven by you, Lisa, nobody approached you. Yeah, there's a, a subgroup that's called the Multi-Agency Group for Accommodation for Sex Offenders. So that was started back in the early 2000s between probation. And I've been on that, the longest serving body member, even though we didn't actually have anybody with sexual convictions at the time. But for me, it was a very important statement of intent that PACE was there, that we were at the table, that we were part of all of these discussions. So before we ever had risk assessments happening in Ireland, we were at that table and having that conversation. You know, it was something I was always driving forward because it was really important that we just don't, ignore the most harmful offences because they're distasteful because we don't like them so you really do believe in restart i do (laughs) (laughs) with that in mind what is your biggest obstacle to moving forward and do you believe that this whole program should be expanded yeah the biggest obstacle to moving forward i think it depends on where you're moving to i think we have a lot of work to do as a society in how we address sexual violence in terms of not just understanding the harm, but understanding what prevents it and understanding what causes it, and also facing up to it. There's a lot that goes on behind closed doors we're not good at dealing with. I think we need to find a way to make it safe for everybody, and particularly for those people who've not offended, to come forward to say, I think I might, I'm afraid I might, I'm ashamed I might, I'm scared of myself. We need to make that space safe without having that fear-based response 
there's a lot of education I think we need to do. An organization like us can't lead that. We're on the other end of it, but we need to be working together. We're always very conscious of bringing in the experience of organizations and people you know, into the training that we do that we never lose sight of the voice of the person that's been harmed. The process of these offences is around disempowering and people losing their voices. So we want to make sure that we're not part of that problem. We're part of something that re-engages those voices, for want of a better word. We need to be able to do this on a national basis. We may, hopefully, as a bonus from COVID-19, be able to run virtual groups in a way that we wouldn't have even considered before. There's lots of developmental things that we can do. There's a whole load of work that we need to do and looking at having the structures that are there to support people so that when they come from prison, we have a clear path. We need society to accept that people are here, whether we like it or not. Has any of those men been back into their family? Yeah. Some go back to family homes, you know, some go back to parents. But if the family's in a position to provide support, then that's good. A knowledge of the offence, it prevents the person getting into homelessness. Part of what we're developing is the programme for significant others. There are men that work with us um, that have offended sexually in, within their families and go back to that family. And again, that's a complex dynamic because there's all kinds of things happening there. And obviously, TUSA would then be involved in, in that situation. So those things get quite complex. We try to do work with those significant others in particular. There needs to be that awareness of risk and there needs to be awareness of triggers got a partner bringing somebody back who's sexually offended in that home like Tusla won't let them back straight away but there is a piece there is a process that needs to be done with that partner and that's not always done by Tusla so we need to do that piece ourselves so sexual offending is complex and there are people that are repeat offenders against the same victim over and over and over and over and over over a lifetime and that starts at in it starts at a young age and continues into adulthood then there's people that are very specific around age and only offend against that specific age. There's all kinds of layers to it. And that's the difficulty with it. That when you're looking at sentencing and you're looking at very serious offending over a substantial period of time, that the man being elderly and frail by the time it's reported and stuff can be a mitigating factor, which it shouldn't be. Yeah, but the age is taken into consideration by the judge. And I think that's the problem. So you're looking at the, at the complexity from a number of angles. And, and there is an issue with, you know, it's when people become adults that things come out. Do you find your work fulfilled? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing? Well, I thought this was going to be controversial, you know, and it's not a particularly nice subject. But my God, I'm totally depressed. I feel... I'm sorry. Deep, I'm it's not, not your fault. It's like the deep sadness around the absolute mayhem and pain that's caused by this crime right across the board that the that the perpetrators are just as well i mean they're the ones responsible obviously but they're in hell as well and it just feels so tragic the whole thing and i feel like thank god you're doing the work you are i don't know who else would do it if you didn't we're well down the road in terms of forgiveness and seeing the need for working with perpetrators because you just can't keep mopping up Mm -hmm. after the damage they're doing without trying to tackle the actual problem which is the perpetrators and so we're definitely on on that thinking line we're definitely there but at the same time it's like listening to your explanation around the services and all that it just feels not hopeless now I absolutely am really encouraged by the findings and how 
successful you believe this to be that's very encouraging i'm absolutely delighted about that but the overall picture of it is very dismal and like the government aren't really contributing to supporting the victims or the perpetrators are dealing with this in any way and it just feels like it's always a charity or non-profit organization coming in to do the legwork and sometimes it just feels overwhelming now i really feel but thank god for you honest to god jesus i don't know how you are doing it but just curious now true listening to you has brought me down so i'm just wondering how do you feel about your job in general do you are you okay or do you not feel but it depends who you ask and then the day you're asking to be fair I, I think I've been very privileged you know I mean I'm with, I'm with Pace a long time I'm, I'm with Pace longer than I anticipated so I was 30 when I started in, in Pace so that's a whole lifetime ago now I think I'm in a privileged position to be able to say, say I've made a difference I looked back and I suppose knowing the harm that's caused I get to say well at least we prevented even if it's just one like if all of this work just prevents one more person being harmed that to me is positive um, like, and if through all of the work that we do kind of not just obviously in the prevention services but also with people with addiction and mental health if we can save one more life if we get stuck in the bigger picture at times that's when it can feel hopeless you know that we can feel actually we're not making maybe it that's what it is yeah, so because I work with it and because I can see the difference and there are days that we do really well and other days you think, well, that didn't go so well and that wasn't so great. But no, I mean, what keeps me kind of whole and sane in the process is knowing that actually I'm in a position of privilege. I get to do work that makes a difference. I get to know, you know, some of the worst things that everybody's done, but I also get to not stuck in it. And when there's days that I think, well, okay, I can't do that, you know, that's tough, that, that's not good and that's not this. I need to take time off and get supervision and support for myself to ensure that I am keeping myself whole. Please, I actually think the biggest gap that needs to be filled that nobody's paying attention to is like you said earlier on, there has to be somewhere where somebody can go when they just have the yeah. feeling they're going to abuse somebody. That gap in the middle is where it really needs to be plugged and that's the prevention bit, but that's it's always the bit. That you don't get back and forth and that's always the bit that the government aren't interested in but you see it's also an education piece because if you look at even the whole discussion around consent and me too and even yeah. the response to normal people and all that stuff that's yeah. happening it's that sexual piece of who you attract to you know kind of and that learning happens kind of in adolescence so they're the conversations that are beyond the criminal justice sector right. that's an educational piece that's a society piece and it's making it okay to talk about these sexual pieces in a way that means we can direct properly and we can say actually some of the guys were saying they were able to say well actually I've been like this now since I was 13 in terms of being more attracted to people younger as that person got older that age of attraction didn't change yeah. if we can have those conversations through an educational piece and a health piece like as a victim going back in to look at your history and look at where all your behaviors and thoughts come from it's not something you really willingly do, and it does take a while. As a victim, I would struggle to want to do that, and it took me longer than June and Joyce even yeah. to go back in there. Yeah. So I can't imagine if I was a perpetrator even wanting to do that. And that is the only way to change behaviours, to understand what you did and why you did it. But to get somebody to, to be skilled enough to work with people and get them to see the benefits of that mm -hmm. is amazing. If you can get somebody to sit down and explore why and how they do what yeah. they do that's the whole key to the problem we have it is yeah and that's the prevention that's the bit that means that nobody else can be harmed by that person 
Yeah. And again, it's no more secrets because all this stuff happens in secret. It's making the decision to not do it again. It's understanding why you did in the first place and choosing to not do it again and learning the skills as to how to ask for help. As when people ask for help, we have to be able to help them. In terms of your organisation, what would you like to see happen next? We were very short staffed now last year, so I'd, I'd like all of that side to develop. I'd like to be able to do the developmental piece that we know we need to do. Like a post-treatment group, we need to be able to run that. So we want to continue to grow the significant other piece. We want to do the maintenance piece and we want to do the ID group as well in terms of looking at developing that. The challenge for us is to look at how we can resource that outside of Dublin. Not everything is about becoming bigger. It's looking to see where the need is and how we can meet that need. So there's a lot of work for us still to do kind of organisationally and there's a lot of pieces to be done. Getting legislation in would help and getting those pieces working and those pieces resourced through the guards would be good and probation obviously is going to be going through a lot of new changes they've got a new director coming on board in the next while yeah i think it'd be great if they could tie on to the end of the sentence that they have to complete your your program that it shouldn't you shouldn't have to cut it off just because their probation period isn't long enough what we want from the judge's perspective is give a minimum of two years post-release supervision that means then that you have time you have that two years for the person to actually get that work done you're doing all the things you know need to be done and no one needs no one wants to touch them. That's right. But I mean it the main thing that's coming through in every interview we've done so far is the sentence and process, the need for judges to be trained yeah. to understand the crime they're dealing with. And there has to be some consistency. Yeah. You know, there has to be and some sense of fairness and some sense of justice. Like that's not rocket science. But that has come true in every interview we've done with anybody. That really has to be addressed. We have to look at a way that that can be done. And Lisa, we'd love to thank you very much for coming on and speaking you're to welcome. us. I just think you're amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank, thank you, Joyce. Given that you're over 20 years in that organisation, your levels of enthusiasm are very encouraging. You still have lots of plans, lots of ideas. You haven't run out of steam. And I'm so, uh, you know, in awe of the work that you do because there's so many people just don't want to know they don't want to touch it and somebody has to step up to the plate it's such an important area it just has to be done so um we're just eternally grateful that you exist and that your organization exists thank you for listening hopefully some of the information we've shared will resonate with you and bring you to a place where you can have compassion for yourself please know that no matter how you feel or how you respond to the abuse, it was normal. We're hopeful and optimistic that those in a position of power to bring about change will be moved into action so we can finally eradicate childhood sexual abuse. So please spread the word and share the information. The decision to heal from childhood sexual abuse places you on the most important journey of your life. You're in charge of this journey. Only you know what works for you and what doesn't. It takes as long as it takes because there's no rush in it and there's no faking it. You have to feel it. And just as the ripple of pain that you're in goes out and impacts all of those around you, so does the healing. And the more you heal, the more everyone around you benefits from your healing. You've been listening to the Kavna Sisters podcast. 
You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email the Kavanagh sisters at gmail.com.